Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Autistic Tidbits and Tangents podcast. I am Maya Todale. I'm an autistic psychologist and author from Denmark, and this is my co-host, Kara Diamond. I'm an autistic teacher and university lecturer from Toronto, Canada. Yeah. Yeah. And today... We are kind of doing a a deep dive into the diagnostic criteria of autism um, using the DSM-5 and the ICD-10, which I will explain a little bit more of when we get started properly. But basically, the thought is like, what's missing in the diagnostic criteria or what's there that's kind of weird? Um, and just having a general discussion about that. So let's do this. Welcome to Autistic Tidbits and Tangents. Candid conversations between autistic off-hour professionals. (laughs) Cool. So, trigger warnings for this episode include um, talking about diagnostic criteria. Yeah, it's an orange language. Yeah. Um, oh, a discussion of ABA in yes. which actually includes not just completely hating on it because I'm weird. On your side, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pathologizing language that you know because we're talking about clinical terms. Trying to be nuanced in in our criticism of things. Oh no. <laughs> there are some difficult topics. A lot of lot of discussions yeah. of ableism. It, it's a lot. It's a lot. Just go with it. Go with it. Hear us out. Okay. So, um, actually, we didn't even know what we were going to record today, but I wrote to Kara. Um, like an hour ago, maybe. <laughs> yeah, kind of like an hour ago, just going, oh, I just got this idea for something. Um, and... It's actually because I started thinking about how sensory sensitivities weren't added to the diagnostic criteria until DSM-5. And it was a big deal at the time. And that just got me thinking like, diagnostic criteria are always evolving Mm -hmm. from, from addition to addition. So like, we never really think that we've necessarily nailed it. <laughs> and no, and how have we gone wrong this time. <laughs> we've talked in other episodes. I think in our first season, we talked a, a little bit about how different diagnostic tools are being piloted in different countries because they aren't always culturally sensitive or relevant either, right? So there's there's exactly. so many reasons why you know that they'll capture some people and miss a whole bunch of others. Yeah. And it's always a really big topic, like whenever a system is updated, which doesn't happen all that often, (laughs) um, like which people might the new interpretations miss? Yes. Like the, the new diagnostic criteria don't necessarily catch everyone that they did before, but they might catch a new group of people. 
And so balancing that out is, is a huge topic. Um, obviously, especially within each field. Yes. Now, uh, I, I think the first thing I should start with is just explaining what is the DSM-5 and the ICD-10, and why yes, are we please. talking about those specifically? I pass that over to you <laughs> as the psychologist here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm so qualified. Yay. Very We're professionals here. <laughs> Okay, so the DSM-5 is the Diagnostic and Statistical um, Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, and it was published in 2013. This is the diagnostic manual that is used in English-speaking countries, um, and, like, it's it's made in America. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a um, it's an American like it's the American Psychiatric Association that that makes it and publishes it. Um, And it's the it's the diagnostic manual that is predominantly used in research. So whenever you read research uh, about autism, it's very, very likely that it's based on the DSM system. Um, obviously the DSM five is the fifth edition. There's been a fourth edition. There's been a third edition. (laughs) There's been a second and a first edition. Um, and it changes, I would say, honestly, kind of substantially from, from edition to edition. Yes. Um, and then we have the ICD 10, like for those of you that are watching, on on youtube or somewhere that's got video i'll just show them real quick um this this is the dsm-5 it's a huge (laughs) it looks like a giant phone book back when we used to have phone books yeah it pretty much does and and it's heavy it is a heavy heavy thing um and mind you that is only mental disorders wow now then we have the mental disorders section of the ICD-10 and you can see that it is a tiny tiny book wow comparison it is smaller than my high school agenda yeah um this is the ICD-10 um which is published by WHO and obviously um again like I said this is only the mental disorders part of it um, the ICD system, unlike the DSM, actually applies to all types of illnesses. So there's a section for everything. So that tiny, tiny book that is like maybe an inch and a half thick <laughs> yeah. covers everything. Whereas the DSM. No, 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 no. Okay. This is only this is only the the mental disorders part. Okay. I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. How how in depth are they? Um, (laughs) And and the difference, honestly, between these two books is that the DSM-5 has a lot more like, um, sorry, detailed descriptions going along with each, whereas the ICD-10 is is much more like just listing the, um, the symptoms, the criteria. 
And then there's like a tiny, tiny, tiny description. I don't know if you can even. Okay. So like tiny descriptions and then lists of symptoms. So uh, for those of you who aren't watching, that part probably wasn't super interesting. And I'm sorry about that. Um, anyway, what I find interesting about the ICD-10 is that um, that is the, the system that we're still using in Denmark. Uh, the ICD is used in most of the rest of the world. Um, okay. I can't tell you specifically which countries, though, because I only work in Denmark. Yeah. <laughs> and I read some research. So I know these two systems. I know that they're generally kind of used like DSM is English speaking countries and the ICD is kind of like the rest of the world. Hmm. But I can't tell you which countries specifically will use either. That's fine. Um, but I do know that ICD 11 has been published, but because it is translated into so many different languages and that is done in um at different speeds shall we say depending okay. on the country and then the translation has to go back and be approved so it's like they translate it then they translate it back and then they have to approve the translation oh my goodness it's, it's a super super lengthy process which means that even though the icd-11 has actually been completed it has not been implemented in Denmark. So we are still using the ICD-10 system in Denmark, which was published in 1994. No. <laughs> yes. So it, it, it is literally almost 30 years old. That's unbelievable. So would yes. How does that work? Like how, how do you help it doesn't i was like how did you get a diagnosis <laughs> well i i got a diagnosis um in like 2003 yeah so i've had my diagnosis for a while now in in the icd-10 um and and this actually goes for dsm-4 as well um so not the current version but the former version of the dsm system okay. Uh, you have different autism diagnoses. Okay. So um, Asperger's syndrome is a thing in D in ICD-10. Mm -hmm. um, atypical autism, infantile autism, um, and then we have then we have one that we in Danish. Uh, called GUA, and I actually don't know what it's called in English, but it's like developmental disorder other yes like, we have a, per, a pervasive developmental yeah. disorder pdd nos not otherwise yeah. specified yeah yes yes that'll yeah. be the one yeah. um and that's basically we kind of want to give you an autism diagnosis but we can't so you're getting this one sorry yeah. <laughs> Close. Yeah. um so those are all different diagnoses in the ICD-10 system and used to be in DSM-4. Yes. But in DSM-5, it's just autism spectrum disorders. They all got sort of subsumed under the same mm -hmm. label. <laughs> yeah, and then what they've done is they've um, they've separated them into levels, level one, two, three. 
which are tied into support needs rather than necessarily symptoms. And I know that that was really, um, some people had a significant problem with that because when we talk about support needs, Mm -hmm. um, individuals who are perceived as having fewer support needs, having less support needs, don't tend to qualify for services. But my understanding is one of the the rationale for getting rid of Asperger's and things like that was so that everyone has more um, opportunity to qualify because you all have autism. Yeah. Um, So we'll we'll go back and go through the, the diagnostic criteria in just one moment, but very quickly, I'll just explain about the levels. Sure. So um, ASD level one is basically, um, they label that as requiring support. And level two, they label that as requiring substantial support. And level three, requiring very substantial support. Um, and and they, do, they do specify that more, like there's... There's a lot more to it than that, but it's just to say that even level one, which is considered perhaps milder or less complex. Bunny ears, mild. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's still requiring support. So you don't get a diagnosis if you don't require support. Um, And this is actually one of the one of the key differences i think between like yes self diagnosis is valid but there's a reason we have diagnostic criteria and there's a reason that professionals kind of gatekeep diagnoses a little bit and that is you don't get any diagnosis unless it is affecting your daily life in a negative way hmm. So if you're, if you are going through life with fair ease, it doesn't matter if you're autistic, you still won't get the diagnosis. You will be what we call subclinical. Um, You are not meeting the clinical level of requiring a professional diagnosis. Of needing to be in distress? Like, I I find that a little problematic. Obviously, I understand it because... um, I, I, you know, I understand that we have to mm. have systems and, you know, the implications and the reasons labels developed and all of that, um, though I have problems with, with the myth of normal as well. Um, oh, absolutely. We could absolutely. do a whole episode on, on that. The, <laughs> the myth of normal, myth of the, the commodification of parenting. There's actually a great article on that I will post. Um, and it's all about how our idea of normal has only existed for a hundred years and the rise in, in trying to identify normal meant narrowing criteria so that there are way more outliers who are not normal and, and how really that's used to sell things to parents, (laughs) which we see a lot in the autism industry. Mm. Um, I went off on a tangent and I don't remember my original point. (laughs) How are you, Maya? (laughs) Well, it, I mean, it was to do with with how like diagnoses are gate kept. There, it's back. Um, <laughs> just it does make me sad that we we have to always position autism as 
this grand tragedy in some ways to get diagnoses. Like why, you know, and I, that well-being can't come alongside because I think it can. And I think I agree with that, but I don't think that's what the diagnostic criteria are about. Um, and, and I think this actually ties into the main discussion yes. because diagnostic criteria are set up as a way to access support, like official support, official healthcare. Um, so I think it's, it's less so about saying like, like, no, you're not autistic. It's more so you're not autistic in a way that requires support and therefore you can't get the official diagnosis, but that doesn't mean you're not autistic. It just means you're not requiring. Okay, that is fair. Like, I think I, that's, that's the way I see it anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't and, think it's universally given that way. But. <laughs> that's more to do with how we've structured society and we can talk about that needing to change. <laughs> uh, but I, I feel like it's more it's more so a problem of how we've structured access to to support and healthcare systems yeah. rather than an issue with how diagnoses work. Mm -hmm. Because if we could say, yeah, sure, you can get the diagnosis, but you don't require any support right now. Great. Okay. Um, good for you. Yes. Um, and then you might need support at a later time. Yes. Um, and, and from my point of view as well, when it comes to these levels, level one, two, three, I don't see those as stationary. I yeah. feel like you can be level one at one point in your life and level three at another. Yeah, like you'll have a week uh, where you crash and burn and then the next like two years your executive functioning is out the window. You can't tidy your house. You can't do all the things. Yeah. It's, it's it, 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 you know, one of my students showed me an image, I guess it was a meme or something um, of like a soundboard, a mixing board and how all of the autistic traits can can move yeah. and flow and be at different levels at any given time. Yeah. You know? and, and I, I feel like that's very much a part of how autism works and I mean for the vast majority of us we will see that the the childhood and teen years I almost especially want to say the teen years that's when our difficulties tend to be worse like that's that's when we require the most support and then mid-20s things kind of tend to even out a little bit for most of us, yeah. but not all. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I've heard like other times too. So, so people who go through menopause, menopause can mm -hmm. be functioning worse. Like there's, there's certain periods of our lives, periods of our lives. <laughs> That's a pun unintentional. Um, <laughs> you know, where, where these things wax and wane a little bit. Yeah. 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 Okay. So diagnostic criteria. Okay. Um, and I'm I'm not going to go through both books because that is just going to, that's going to be a lot. So we're going to focus on the DSM-5. 
Okay. Okay. So uh, the DSM-5 is, you have like clusters and then under each cluster, you may have like additional things, right? So cluster A is persistent deficits in social communication and social interaction across multiple contexts as manifested by all of the following currently or by history. And this by history for me is very important because a part of what they describe in in like the, the longer description in the DSM-5 is that symptoms can change over time. And, and uh, they did add that I believe that was an addition in DSM-5 where they wanted to establish that like symptoms, symptoms, I even hate using medical language, mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. but that these traits were evident from childhood was, mm -hmm. it was a point that they, they wanted to emphasize. Um, yes, but also the other way around that, that some autistic people can mask, for example, their social difficulties up until a certain point when their strategies fail. Yep. And that is what happens for so many of us is yeah. that we kind of get to the preteen years or the teen years and then everything just collapses because our masking strategies fall apart. Um, so yeah, under cluster A, we have deficits in social emotional reciprocity, deficits in nonverbal communicative behaviors, and deficits in developing, maintaining, and understanding relationships. And again, those are specified further. Um, but if if I had to read everything, we would never get done with this episode. So um, now I want to note that for me, it's very weird to to look at diagnostic criteria like this, because on the one hand, I think these diagnostic criteria are really good. Like they're really good. They're such an improvement. <laughs> but on the other hand, I hate the deficit language. Yes, the deficit oriented language is horrible. Like it's differences in how we do things, but, mm -hmm. but those differences do lead to distress when no one else does the things those same ways, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. It becomes a deficit in the context that we're in. Because we're, we're viewed through the prevailing way of doing things by neuro, neurotypicals, by non-autistics yeah. who think it's weird when you're a direct communicator who says exactly what you think or feel, <laughs> so, you know, and they're, they're so used to, to obscuring or, things, or you know, you want to be told things directly, like yes. even just having that wish of others yes. is considered weird. Like, and like, no, I wouldn't ask you if mm -hmm. I didn't want the real answer. It, and that's pathologized. Answer. And to me, that's not, that is not something that needs to be pathologized, but I do definitely think it's, it's a yeah. trait we see in our peoples, <laughs> you yeah. know? Oh yeah. Our autistic brethren. Yep. Okay. Cluster B. Restricted, repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, or activities as manifested by at least two of the following currently or by history. One, 
stereotyped or repetitive motor movements, use of objects or speech. Insistence on sameness is number two, um, as well as inflexible adherence to routines or ritualized patterns of verbal or nonverbal behavior. Number three, highly restricted fixated interests that are abnormal in intensity or focus. Abnormal. I hate that. Yes. Just because we have better concentration when it comes to something we're passionate about, like that is something that should be lauded, not, uh, you know, <laughs> not used against us as a, yeah. yeah. Go on. And then this is, this is the great addition to to the um, DSM-5 is number four under cluster B, hyper or hypo reactivity to sensory input or unusual interests in sensory aspects of the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's where we get the sensory sensitivities or the opposite really yes. which is yeah. lack of sensory sensitivity yeah. or interest in the sensory environment which is gold yes. it's absolute gold like i love 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 that they added that mm -hmm. because it never used to be recognized as a as a part of autism mm -hmm. um so that is something they did really well yes and i do want to credit them yes for that um, now, and then we get to point C, D, and E, which are not really clusters, but they're more points. Okay. So C, symptoms must be present in the early developmental period, but may not be become fully manifest until social demands exceed limited capacities or may be masked by learned strategies in later life. So there we get the masking and the failure of masking, like when when strategies yeah. no longer work. D, and this is the point that is a part of all diagnoses, really. Symptoms cause clinically significant impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of current functioning. E, these disturbances are not better explained by intellectual disability or global developmental delay. So basically, just like with all other psychiatric diagnoses, we have to exclude other explanations. Yes. Um, there's there's always like a hierarchy in diagnosis where okay. it's like so for for basically everything um, even things like depression you have to exclude potentially medical reasons why something is like why you have certain symptoms yes in order to actually um, grant the psychiatric diagnosis okay that makes sense yeah now, then there's some additional stuff with, uh, with this, which is that in addition to these clusters, uh, cluster A and cluster B, and these points that have to be uh, 
be relevant. You also then specify if, with or without accompanying intellectual impairment, with or without accompanying language impairment, uh, associated with a known medical or genetic condition or environmental factor, associated with another neurodevelopmental, mental, or behavioral disorder, and with catatonia. So all of those things have to be specified yeah. along with the diagnosis. Yeah. So... We hate the ableist language. We are not a fan of it. Um, and in many ways, it's not all that different from DSM-4. So much of the language about social impairments and like the stereotyped behavior and interests and things like that, that's all very much the same as it, as it used to be. Um, but the sensory aspect is new. And getting rid of some of the labels for a more broad label mm -hmm. is and and specifying support level is new. Yeah. Yes. So let's get to the fun part. <laughs> yes, let's get to the fun part. So the thing that I thought of earlier today, um, which kind of hit me other than the sensory stuff, is why are we not putting putting in options at least for um, differences in interoception and extraception? Oh, that's a good one. Yes. Why is that not a part of the diagnostic criteria? Let's explain what that is for yes. our. So interoception is sort of your own awareness um, of what's going on with your body, of how you feel. Um, yeah. So that can be like, so for instance, uh, if I'm hyper-focused, I don't notice that I need to use the washroom. I don't notice that I'm hungry. I don't notice that I'm thirsty. Um, mm -hmm. I see in children all the time, like they might be really grumpy and they have a toothache, but they haven't they haven't made that connection or said that to anybody or a stomachache. And, and so it's like a sort of low awareness of what's going on. What's going on in your body? Did I do a good job of that, Maya? <laughs> with one addition sure please it also applies to your emotions yes yes so, uh, that's uh, where we get alexithymia <laughs> yeah um but a part of interoception is also just not being able to necessarily register what emotion you are experiencing um or to what degree Yes, you and I have talked a lot about how sometimes us, but also the 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 well clients you work with, the the children that mm -hmm. I work with, they'll know when they're bored, they'll know when they're low level stimulation, and they'll know when they're like ah, but nothing in between. They sort of know yeah. the one to two and the nine to ten, but yeah. they recognize how their bodies go through. Okay, now I'm a bit annoyed. Now I'm more frustrated. Now I'm angry. Now I'm raging. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. Which is also why a lot of autistic people tend to have um, kind of sudden emotional outbursts because we don't notice when the emotion is building. Yes. And we don't register it until it's actually like at the top. Well, we're panicking until it's a fire. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we're like super angry. Yeah. 
But really, that anger has been building for a while. We just haven't noticed it because of differences in interoception. Um, and I have to say, like, I'm doing a lot of work on interoception with an mm -hmm. autistic therapist, which is amazing. And I'm beginning to learn different signs that, oh, I'm beginning to feel anxious or I'm like, and it is, it's remarkable to be like, oh, that's that. That's what that is. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, I spent years learning to recognize the early symptoms of an anxiety attack. Yeah. Um, or of sensory meltdown because I kept having these huge reactions all of a sudden to like really small things. And I think honestly, probably the first, first three, four years of my twenties, I just spent them learning to recognize those very, very early signs so that I could react and respond so much earlier and avoid the meltdown. Yeah. Or avoid the sensory, wow. like, overwhelming. And I, <laughs> I'm like, spending the last years of my 30s doing it. So, <laughs> yeah. no, but it's, it's so, it's so messed up that it's so hard, but it is. Now, yeah. the weird thing about about the differences in interoception is that, like with everything else, autistic people tend to fall on extremes. But even in interoception, we can fall in extremes with every single different thing. So some people can be super, super sensitive to, for example, temperature. Yes. But Me not to pain. I've definitely seen students who have no pain. Yeah. Like they, they they could put their hand on a hot stove and they wouldn't feel it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not a lot, but a couple. And and yeah. But like that's just an example, right? It could be with everything. Oh, and so, a good point about temperature too, because I see students mm -hmm. all the time who will be wearing their winter coat and it's a warm April day. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just like it's their parents sent it. They wear it. They don't really pay attention to the fact that their bodies are sweating. They don't feel feel yeah. overheated even though they are overheating <laughs> yeah and it, yeah and it's like um okay so an example for me I am super super sensitive to cold I'm not very sensitive to heat oh I'm so sensitive um, to heat I hate it but I am completely unable to distinguish whether I am hungry or full. Interesting. Like when I get nauseous from being hungry or get nauseous from being full, those two, those two sensations are the same. Yeah. Yeah. Completely wow. the same. I cannot tell the difference. I have to have context cues in order to tell the difference. Yeah. Whereas with, with hot and cold, easy. And yeah. I'm so sensitive to cold. Like I, I am one of those people that will start wrapping up in my winter jacket <laughs> way earlier than other people. Yeah. And, and then with heat. Okay. This is going to sound weird, but like I live in Denmark. Okay. It doesn't, it doesn't get very warm here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, um, ah. Uh, 
we can have we can have large temperature um, dips and 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 highs within a very short time period. But it doesn't get very cold here, and it doesn't get very warm. Um, but like I will feel cold about fifteen degrees Celsius, huh? uh, which I cannot do those conversions. I I would have to look those conversions. Oh, no. I, we, in Canada, we do Celsius, so we're okay. Yeah, Fahrenheit. Yeah, I don't but know. If, I don't but know. if we have American listeners, then then I really should do the conversions. Um, okay, so Celsius to Fahrenheit. One second. Okay, <laughs> fifteen degrees Celsius is uh, fifty nine Fahrenheit. Yeah. Okay, so I will start feeling like cold. I, I feel like it's it's almost winter at that point. <laughs> Sorry, I laugh because I'm Canadian. <laughs> it's real cold here sometimes. It's real hot here too. I, I I know I know, but okay. Here's the weird thing though. I have I have a friend who is Canadian and moved here. He lives here. Um, and like he grew up with his family having a pack of huskies and like yeah, you know using them as sled dogs right yeah when he we moved don't to all have sled dogs just so you know no, 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 I, I, <laughs> but that's like that's the context he came yeah, from right yeah, yeah. um so when he moved here he was like it's insane it's a like, ball no no the winters here are insane because oh. the cold it, like it creeps through Oh, and he said he said in Canada he could get he could get by with like having one really good winter coat. He brought his winter coat from Canada and he was cold here. Wow. <laughs> because the only thing that works in Denmark is layers. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's like just just as with people saying that like like it's a dry heat or a humid heat. Oh. Cold is really different when it's dry and humid as well. Yes, that's definitely true. Um, anyway, the point where I start feeling like it's like really comfortably warm, yeah, is around twenty-seven Celsius. Which oh, that's is that's when I tap out. I'm like, it's too hot for me. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> when I start feeling like properly comfortable. <laughs> I'm like, it's vacation time. Well, we should trade. You should come work in my classroom because it's like 40 degrees right now. It's so hot. There's no AC. No, but Kara, <laughs> I would want to be like, I would want to be in summer clothes. I, it's, <laughs> it, it wouldn't be work appropriate clothes. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's, it's very but different. Like if, I, if I go on vacation, I yeah. want I want those 27 degrees yeah. Celsius up yeah. to 30, 32 yeah like that's that's comfortable yeah but my bodily sensations when it comes to like food needs yeah thirst like yeah. I'm nothing nothing I, I don't know what's going on I really yeah. don't yeah. um okay so extra reception because we only covered interoception and you do that one 
Um, extra reception is your ability to basically perceive things that are outside of your body. So uh, one of the ways that we talk about extra reception with autism is that we tend to have a very high attention to detail. And we will notice like colors, patterns, um, tiny, tiny, tiny details about the environment that we're in. Um, for me, one of the things that I notice is bugs, unfortunately. Yes, I um, noticed that too. Yeah. Anything that's moving, yeah, I'm I like... spot it immediately, even if it's tiny. Yeah. And other people don't notice. Yeah. And I'm fixated on it immediately. Yeah. Um, again, just an example, but like we tend to we tend to notice details a lot. It mm -hmm. can also be like how how do you even perceive color or how do you perceive um movements? Yeah. But it's yeah, extra reception, interoception, right? So it's it's inside and outside of your body. So extraception is like what makes us good at those, see what's different between these two pictures types of activities or find the, the, the word search things, like how things just pop out for us. We notice them fairly easily. Maybe yeah. not for everyone, but for me, certainly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, um, that's definitely a part of it. It's It's also so much more like, one of the ways that you can have different extra reception, um, like I would say that synesthesia, okay, okay, is is a part of it, even though, I mean, technically, technically, the 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 like sensory conversion is happening inside of your brain, but I mean, so is so is the perception of things like it's all in our brains yeah. so um and and autistic brains just tend to focus on different things so for me that's one of the things that's missing in the diagnostic criteria and i'm not saying that it should replace something else necessarily but i feel like it's something that isn't there that could definitely be mentioned. So incorporating like monotropism type of type of things, yeah. like how we have interspaced attention yeah. systems and and yeah. how how we activate differently. Yeah. How yeah, yeah, I I agree with you there. Hmm. Okay, so I, another thing I think is weird about yes, the diagnostic tell criteria. Me. Tell me. And and I think this has been weird for a very, very long time, is why we are specifying um, things like uh, adherence to routines. Everyone has routines. <laughs> no, but here's the thing, though. When we talk about insistence on sameness, yeah. um, ritualistic adherence to routines, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I feel like that's a stress response. It is a stress so than it's like it. Predictability. We have a need for predictability in a chaotic, unpredictable world. Yes. And I, on the one hand, like I do see that autistic people tend to want those things more than other people. 
even when we're not stressed. But, okay, finish your thought. No, but go ahead. Sorry, just insistence on sameness. It just feels a little ironic when we are being labeled for not being the same. It's like having labels is an insistence on sameness and Mm -hmm. pathologizing anything that is not the same. Go Mm -hmm. on. Sorry. Proceed. (laughs) No, but for me, it just feels like, why are we not in the diagnostic criteria at least acknowledging that insistence on sameness, that stimming, that routines are mm-hmm. response to stress, to chaos, to anxiety. Yes, exactly. And and we don't need to be anxious. This is another thing that bothers me. Like I have I have seen so many people who come to me and say, I can't get, um, I can't get a separate anxiety diagnosis because my psychiatrist feels like my anxiety is just a part of my autism. And I'm like, why, why, why should anxiety be just an a part of being autistic it it shouldn't have to be that we just acknowledge that those two things go together because we don't have to be very anxious like hope you're right I'm anxious all the time so I don't have any any experience of not being anxious except for a few select occasions where I like go for walks in the wood but (laughs) well here's the thing all the time I feel like our anxiety is so context-based. So I actually do have a separate anxiety diagnosis. Actually, the diagnosis that I have is like mixed anxiety depression. Okay. Uh, So it's not specified. I feel like what I actually have is a very, very, very mild like subclinical version of generalized anxiety disorder like I tend to worry yeah I tend to worry but I'm not I'm not debilitated by my anxiety yeah I'm only debilitated by my anxiety when I am stressed oh that that is definitely I I have very high functioning anxiety most of the times to use a functioning label. Um, But yeah, then there are times where it's just like, it's too much stress and it's like, ah, I don't want to be here anymore. Everything's terrible. Ah, how do I cope? Like, and everything falls apart. Everything just like feels like way too much. But it's triggered by stress. Yeah. 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 I would say that the non-functional parts definitely come out in the stress. And and like, of I I can recognize that as autistic people, maybe we have more of a tendency to be worriers because we tend to focus on details. And I think we have a hair trigger, like stress response, right? Like, you know, anything that- Where does that come from though? That is a great question. Is that an integral part of autism or is that an integral part of childhood trauma? 
I think it's because I mean, I feel like if you talk to an autistic person, they've most likely been bullied. Yeah, we've been bullied again. Sensory overwhelm is constant. Yeah. Like your nervous system gets rewired because you're experiencing this this level of stress over and over and over again throughout your life. And sometimes we're suppressing it and putting ourselves even more in stressful situations. I know all the time. All the time. Um, time. (laughs) Getting good at it now. I'm getting good at being like, no. Um, But yeah, so like I can see why it like for me, it does feel like a huge part of being autistic is being stressed all the time. But I don't feel like it has to be. And I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Yeah. No, but here, I, I, I feel like. I feel like I know, actually. Please tell and me. here's why. When we remove autistic people from high pressure um, environments and we put them in a slow paced environment that is predictable, mm-hmm. usually surrounded by nature. Yeah, I'd be great. It's true. It goes away. Yeah, if you and I were hanging out in a cabin in the woods. <laughs> like, I have clients, and these are multiple different people with very different profiles and very yeah. different levels of anxiety, yeah. very different triggers of anxiety. When they live in their city apartments or their um, or their parents' city apartments their anxiety like is times five times 10. Like it's up there. They can't function. Some of them cannot go outside. Like their lives are, are nil. There's, there's no quality of life to, to really discuss. But then whenever they get a week to a month maybe in a summer house in like a a greener environment yes or in a small town even yeah no I agree with anxiety trickles down to a point where they can go and do things they can like suddenly go shopping by themselves. Maybe they can even have a short conversation with the person at the checkout counter. Like, yep. and yeah. so I, I feel like, like, yes, maybe we have more of a tendency towards anxiety and stress and, and these things because our nervous systems maybe have been trained are they anxious to to get you know set off quicker this is on uh, my boyfriend and i went for a weekend and we stayed on a goat and alpaca farm walked alpacas but literally like in all of my pictures i'm happier than i have ever been in my life i'm surrounded by nature animals the person that i love like and I, I look like a big kid. Like my smile is bigger than it's been since childhood. Yeah. goats, goats climbing up my face in the morning while I bottle feed them. It's so cute. I, I feel like 
whenever we actually take ourselves out of the environments that make us feel so terrible, <laughs> we actually work. Yeah. Like, it's true. I just don't feel like. No, I, I just I don't think feel like right. I, I. The weight that's put on that particular diagnostic criteria by so many professionals feels off to me. It feels off because it's not. I feel like it's it's a part of labeling autistic people as naturally anxious and preventing us from getting support for other diagnoses well, that we should be getting. It absolves anyone who is non-autistic of, of having to make any environmental changes, right? <laughs> it does. No, it does. That it's is an excellent like, point. It's fine that you feel this way. You're just yeah, autistic. This is just your way of being. <laughs> and and why? Why should it be that? Yeah. Like I So I acknowledge that I'm an anxious person. I don't necessarily feel like I have anxiety most of the time. And what's really important about that is I feel my anxiety trickling down to a, a very manageable level where it's definitely, like, I don't get medicated. I've, I've never been on anti-anxiety medication, ever. I don't need it. I, I'm fine without it, really. But if I take myself away from the things that stress me out, mm. I barely feel it at all. Yeah. So. Well, and that's, that's a very good point. I think one of the things that we also, so high maskers often don't realize they're autistic because we do remove ourselves from a lot of the situations that would cause us stress or distress. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes in ways that you don't even think of as like removing yourself. So I had to really mm -hmm. think about this, um, some good questioning when I was going through the diagnostic process, but like I used to have friends invite themselves over to play board games. And that was great that they invited themselves over because I probably wouldn't have invited. Like, I don't love people in my space, but I did have the best space and I have the most board games. So, and I would enjoy yeah. myself while games were being played. I still mm -hmm. do I enjoy that. Yeah. Um, but I realized your house back, having guests, all that. But I realized something that I would do every time there was board games. Like I can I can sit and focus on a game a little bit for like 45 minutes, maybe, and then like I sort of am like, I I need to move, I need to get out of this chair. And what I would often do is I would go and like pick up one of the cats and like cuddle with the cat somewhere else mm -hmm. for a little bit of time. But in my mind, I was checking on the cats. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But really, that was a sensory break for me where I could yeah. just quiet and like cuddle my cats. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of other people will do things like 
oh, I'm I'm just gonna go get some snacks for the table. Yeah, I'm gonna or, go to the uh, washroom. Does, does anyone like, want some water? <laughs> I would definitely take extra washroom breaks I didn't need. Yeah. And I, I am definitely a caretaker like that too, where I'll be like, can I get anyone anything? You know. Yeah. And you get to move. But in reality, you're getting a two minute break by going yeah. to do something else. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so going back to the social stuff, um, do you feel like there's anything weird about those criteria, or do I you feel like maybe they're more like culturally bound? They are definitely culturally bound. We know that other tools need to be developed. For me, one of the, the things that I would like to see changed, and I don't know how this would manifest. You might have some ideas about it, but um, I feel like the clinical interpretation piece is where we need to do the most work. Like we almost need to have examples of what those each of those traits looks like so that but people are. But I like I have a I have met so many autistic people or like people who have self-diagnosed and they've been told, oh, you can't be autistic. You have empathy. You can't be autistic. You have too much of an imagination. You wouldn't be able to perspective take enough to be a filmmaker or whatever it is. Like the, like hmm. I, I feel like clinicians get very good at diagnosing a small subset based on like what it looks like in eight-year-old boys. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we need to be like, okay, this, this trait can also look like this, 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 and this. Yeah. You know? Different, different ways it manifests. I don't know. So I feel like the issue with that is that a lot of professionals are still using knowledge that is 30, 40, 50 years old. Awful. Um, and they're not actually getting updated on, on what autism looks like, what we know about autism today. Yes. Um, rather than what we used to know. Yeah. Um, so a lot of those myths are still prevailing. Ooh. So for example, the one about imagination, right? That comes from cluster A, um, part three, okay. um, deficits in developing, maintaining, and understanding social relationships ranging, for example, from difficulties adjusting to behavior to suit various social contexts to difficulties in sharing imaginative play or in making friends to absence of interest in peers. So because we have that imaginative play as a part of the language, I mean, I, I'm very certain that the language used to be different. But even that, it makes it sound like we can't do imaginative play, not that we imagine differently and other people can't keep up with us. And so they're you know, like, no, and but, also it's okay, aimed but, at- But here's the thing though, some people, don't yeah some people don't that's true that's some why I think there needs to be a range of imagination there can be a range of this can look like having difficulties with imagination it can but look that's, like that's what they're saying though that is what they're saying they are saying ranging from this and this and this to this yeah and i feel like that's the part that a lot of professionals who are charged with diagnosing people they're not getting that part in their training. Yes. 
And I feel like that's, that's a point where we have to be better. Not autistic people have to be better, but professionals have yes, to be better. Yes. Understood. Um, like we have to be better in, in mental health care mm. at training people to recognize all the different ways that autism can present. Mm. But I feel like we do have a point there in that perhaps something that's missing from the diagnostic criteria or something that should be highlighted is this issue with like, we tend to be at extremes. So some autistic people have very little imagination. And some are like, woo! <laughs> some, you know, create fictional worlds. Yeah, well, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's like a depth of thinking and a complexity of thinking that autistic mm. people tend to have. Mm. Um, actually, there's a great... There's a great females and autism Asperger's, even though I don't like the use of that word, a checklist by Samantha Kraft. And it's mm -hmm. on females with autism, though I think it can also apply to other people who are autistic and have more internalized presentations, not just females. But it is a really fantastic list and has a lot of things that um, I think could be included in revised criteria. Maybe that's our thing of the day. Yes, I, I, that's a great idea. I will post it. Um, but for instance, so it has a whole bunch of sections. I'm not going to go through all of the sections, but mm -hmm. in section A, a deep thinker, um, point number uh, eight, doesn't simplify. Nine, everything is complex, often gets lost in own, um, own thoughts and checks out, uh, sees things at multiple levels, like because we have very detail oriented, we make connections between things really easily at times. Mm -hmm. um, there's a section on being innocent and sort of like naive and how, mm. how we can be overwhelmed socially. Um, there's a section on escape and friendship, and that has some really great traits. There's some comorbid stuff. Mm -hmm. There's a section on social interaction. Um, like it just, I, I, when I read this, I was like, oh, there's a lot here that sounds like me. Like, whereas when I look at just the basic criteria, I go, I don't know. So who did you say she was? Uh, let's go look at her bio. Uh, her name is Samantha Kraft. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. She she was diagnosed with Asperger syndrome. I'm going to guess she's from Britain. I don't know, but I feel like they still diagnose that there. Um, she ha has been... It might also just be that she was diagnosed back when... Yeah. Well, she, that's also true. She uh, has apparently been researching autism for 12 years. I don't know how much, but um, trying to see. And so it's sort of an unofficial checklist. She has she's a master's degree in education. She's not associated with psycho psychiatry or psychology, okay. but she obviously has the life credential. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. So one of my thoughts with what you were just going through is that um, whenever you go to a checklist that is created by someone who is not trained in using diagnostic criteria, um, there may be, and I'm not 
saying that there necessarily is with this. I'm saying that this is something to be aware of. If you, as a user, are going through a checklist that is created by someone not based on diagnostic criteria, um, not validated um, by research, is that there is the potential for other common comorbidities to kind of be in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so obviously autistic people tend to have, first of all, we're people, right? So what is what is autism? What's your personality? What's your maturity level? Like one of the things that I deal with a lot is with teenage clients, like helping them and their parents to recognize what parts of these challenges that that they're going through right now is autism what is just their personality and what is being a teenager yes. right <laughs> um but also there's such a tendency to have comorbid and i i know that the word i'm about to use is very ableist but i'm i'm talking clinically right now um comorbid disorders yeah. such as anxiety ADD, ADHD. Um, there's there's a whole there's a whole list of potential comorbidities that are very very common if you're autistic. But one of the ones that have the most symptomatic overlap in terms of not the diagnostic criteria but the lived experience yes. is autism and ADD, ADHD. Yeah. Like I've I've sat with um with another autistic psychologist, um hugely smart guy, by the way, one of my favorite people. And we sat down at one point and just tried to make a Venn diagram. Yeah, yeah. Of autism and yeah. ADHD and not going like not going by the diagnostic criteria, but going by what are common everyday challenges or symptoms yeah. that that we can describe and like what what actually falls into both and what is exclusive. And the thing is, a lot of the things that were exclusive aren't really exclusive at all. It's interesting you say that, Maya, because there was a study recently, it's ongoing, but they've studied it in over 500 children. And I think they're on another 500 um, in Toronto, I think yeah. through Bloorview, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but they took groups of children. Mm -hmm. um, so one was the so-called neurotypical group. Then there is yeah. the autistic group. There was an ADHD yeah. group, and I believe there was an OCD group. So mm -hmm. children who had those diagnoses uh, already. Um, and I think they did like functional MRIs. I'm not sure. I have, I, I'm speaking from memory, but they, mm -hmm. they studied their brains mm -hmm. and they actually discovered there was no functional difference between ADHD and autism, except in the case of where there was also a co-occurring intellectual disability. So this is going to have implications going forward that they, we are the same. We are like, we're just different yeah. presentations. They might not be different things. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's possible that autism and ADHD aren't different things. 
they are different, different profiles. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me too, because like we already have such variety as autistic people. We have, we, you know, we, as we mentioned, just, just in talking about like interoception, some people mm. and sensory needs, some people are, you know, hyposensitive to things. Some people are hypersensitive to things. Some people have really vivid attention systems. Some people are more like they're lethargic. Like <laughs> I feel like, I feel like it would be really great if what we moved towards in the diagnostic realm was more a description of profiles rather than saying autism. But isn't or, profiles going back to what they had before DSM-5 and DSM-4? No, where they had no, 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 no. Because, okay, I'll, I'll tell you something really interesting that most people probably aren't aware of. The only difference, diagnostically speaking between infantile autism and Asperger's syndrome is whether or not there is a documented language delay. Yeah. That is the only diagnostic difference. Now, clinically, a lot of professionals also would have this like unwritten rule and still do in Denmark because we're still using the ICD system and we still have those diagnoses here. Um, that infantile autism meant um, meant like a, a normal to low IQ and Asperger's was normal to high. Yeah. But that is not technically, technically a yeah. part of the diagnostic criteria. So the yeah. only difference is language before the age of three, has there been some kind of language developmental delay? Yeah. If yes, infantile autism. If no, Asperger's. Yeah. Wow. Well, and you know and, what? And that me, is... That's not a profile thing. Yeah. That is like, that's a separate descriptor. Okay. Well, I mean, and I, I just want to say just like a note that mm. I read a lot of diagnostic reports of children who are usually about 10 or 11 by the time I read the reports and the reports mm. are from, sometimes they're two, sometimes they're four, sometimes it, they're eight years old. Mm. For the ones where they're really young, sometimes yeah. they uh, they obviously present very differently. Sometimes the things that, that clinicians were developed. projecting, yeah, the yeah. things that clinicians were projecting do not stay stable in all cases. No, of course not. Um, and, course I not. Think, and also so our children, sometimes our children in their home, they speak a different first language and and they're now being assessed in English, but they're more comfortable speaking Tagalog or whatever it is. And so yeah. they don't have much out of them. And you also have like autistic kids don't always like to be told what to do and they might not sit and comply like, no. you know, good little <laughs> children to do the exercises. So like everything's oh. always underestimated. And, yeah. and then we use these underestimates to scare families. Like I, I just had a consult with a wonderful family. Their child is not even three yet. And they were being told to do six hours of ABA a day. Oh my gosh. A child that young. It's like this child deserves the chance to learn and grow and have play opportunities just like but other also, children. That's also, inappropriate, you know? Also, I hate ABA. Yes. Uh, that too. Anyway. Well, so I mean, okay. So here's the thing. Oh, so many people are going to get mad at me for saying this. Um, 
child rearing and dog training are not that far apart. In well, that's years. the premise of ABA. Like, and is, well, is well, the, it is, it is. But here's the thing: what we know about dog training today is that punishment doesn't work. We've we've known that for a while when it comes to training animals. And honestly, and, and for some work. reason, for <laughs> some reason, we're not realizing that humans are an animal. And that punishment also does not work for humans. Well, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of Alfie Cohn, Cohn's work on like, he has a book called Punished by Rewards. And it is like, just like mind blowing paradigm mm-hmm. shift because we are raised in a world where we think, yeah, there should be yeah. justice. Everything should be, yeah. you do something bad, you get punished. You do something good, you get a reward. Like we are, we are, everyone is raised with this mindset. And yeah. And, and that's, that's where I feel like ABA, um, has become so outdated because it is based on behaviorism actually it's it's also based on gay conversion therapy i was gonna say yeah um but it's it's very much based on the idea that you have punishment and reward and those are your tools and what we actually know now um is that whenever you want any animal to learn something and humans are animals. I'm sorry, evolution is a thing. (laughs) Um, We are a mammal. The thing that actually works is learning through curiosity, learning through experimentation. I have so much to say on that, but I think it should be another episode. We should talk about it. It should probably be another episode, yeah. Because I have a whole course that I've given designed around this idea, so. (laughs) Well, um, and, and and it's so important like learning through intrinsic motivation and building a relationship. Yes. Like those are the core. That's what works. That's what works. Use our natural curiosity and desire to learn. Uh, You know, if at, at the school level, if a student isn't doing a task, sometimes you have to go, what's wrong with the task, you know, not what's wrong with the child. Exactly. And, and that is where, so I I think that there is a way to do ABA that is much less harmful than the, than the way that has um, been used. I think there are neurodivergent affirming therapies. Yes. That are preferable. That was the next point. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That was the next point. So like there's the ABA that we absolutely can all agree is just torture. And and then just just a step above that is the ABA that is kind of it's 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 bad, but we we don't necessarily hate it, hate it. And then there's about that, but then there's uh, something yeah. that actually works, which is figuring out who is this person and what do they want? What do they want to do? What how, can, how can we how can we communicate with them? How can we enhance their self-advocacy, their quality of life in ways that they And how can we help them learn the skills they want to learn? Yes, exactly. Everyone has the right to learn. Instead of teaching them the skills we want them to learn. Yes, to make life easier for the adults around them, you know? And uh, obviously it can be very complex and parents have to make tough choices, especially, you know, like there aren't easy answers if it's a child who you know, is running into traffic and they're quite young and they don't have the comprehension yet to under like, 
there are some things where as a parent you are going to make tough choices and you are going to sometimes set limitations or set very harsh boundaries for your child because it's about keeping them safe yeah, and, and so the, those Physically. are times it will be unilateral but like if there are ways to be more collaborative to be more mm-hmm. um I, like i i will always recommend dr ross green we'll do another episode we have to talk about all this on another episode we do we do too much okay, so Cohn, ross do, green do it we have to do an episode on on teaching on on like developmental learning yes about what actually works yeah, we have Dr. to do that. Loretta Hammond has some great work on that. Okay, I'm I'm nerding. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready for that episode. Yeah. Um, okay, so um one last point before we close this episode, um, just to explain what I mean about moving towards a description of profiles rather than yes, just setting a diagnosis or not, is uh so this is something we're we're using in Denmark right now. Um, It's not a validated test yet. It is in the process of being validated. Um, But we are now using a a test called the systemizer test. And it is, it is caveat. um, It is based on the AQ test. And that kind of springs from the systemizer empathizer dichotomy made by Simon Baron Cohen and we do not like that we know it's outdated yada 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 it's called the systemizer test the reason it's called the systemizer test is because it was initially developed to use with people who didn't want diagnostic language yes so people for whom maybe it wouldn't be great for their careers yeah they suddenly had an autism diagnosis right yeah Yeah. um that's that's where it originated that's not where it's at anymore but that's where it started that's why it has that name doesn't matter what it does instead of just saying okay there's a cutoff score and if you're above it you're autistic and if you're below it you're not autistic instead of that what it does is it gives you nine different profile areas where it gives you a separate score so it's like myers-briggs but not (laughs) pseudoscientific well it's not validated yet so (laughs) Um, no but what it does is it'll tell you um it'll tell you a separate score for attention to detail and like sensitivity to change i think you presented this as a thing of the day one time yeah um, and so social um, reciprocity, social communication. Um, I'm, I'm not translating things quickly enough in my head. I'm sorry. It's in Danish right now, this test. Um, but there's like there's three different scores on the social aspect, including social imagination. Then there's sensory sensitivity and social sensitivity, which yep. are two different things and social sensitivity is a different thing from the other social scores so it's like though that soundboard with a whole bunch of different knobs exactly exactly and then what it'll do because you get a score on each different section 
it doesn't just tell you the full score. Are you autistic or not? No, it tells you much more so where are your specific difficulties. And where are your strengths, I assume, as well. And where, where do you not really have that many difficulties? Where's life easier for you, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not a strength-based test. Okay. That's not what it is. Um, because it is so, so closely tied to the diagnostic tests that we're already using. Yeah. Screening tests, that is, because it's not, um, it's not a diagnostic tool. It's a screening tool. But I feel like it's, it's a step in the right direction because it gives you a description of the profile it doesn't tell you, is this person autistic or not? It tells you how they are autistic. Yes, I love that. And, I, and I like that. I, I'm really hoping that in the next 10, 20, 30 years, we move further towards descriptions yes. of profiles rather than labels. Well, and I think that's sort of what I was saying, too, where people need to be able to see themselves and clinicians need to be able to see people mm-hmm. in, you know, beyond just like that surface level word. Like, how does it actually look? How does it manifest it in people? And how does it manifest in people at different ages? Because we yeah. also, our tools are very specific. <laughs> and they're very much based on little white boys. Yeah, eight-year-olds, um, usually. And and so they're not based on people of color. No, they're not based on teenagers, adults, or even mature people. Yeah. Um. And and so everything is very outdated. And honestly, we need a revolution. So if you're listening to this podcast and you are interested in revolutionizing the diagnostic system. Um, get into psychiatry, get into psychology, and become Maybe a researcher. You. Get your PhD. Do the things. Do um, I, I would love to, but I can't because academia is is um, is not a good place for me to be. It's okay not to have the spoons for academia. I understand. I do not have the spoons for academia. You have the smarts, but not the spoons, and that's okay. I, I have. You do. You do have the smarts. I, I have just enough of the smarts, but mm-hmm. I also don't have the motivation. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm very much more of a clinician. I and that's where I'm I'm never gonna get my PhD. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> never ever. I'm surprised. I mean, I love obviously reading things and learning things, but I yeah. much prefer being in the classroom with children. You know what I mean? Yeah. I love I like teaching adults too, but like I like yeah. the practical. I like the teaching. Yeah. I like, like, what do we really do? How do we really help rather than just abstract ideas, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. I agree. And I feel like I, I did my five years. You did. And you got out. Well done. <laughs> I got out. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us are just gluttons for punishment. I just, I, I still work in schools. <laughs> I kept going back. No, here's the thing, though. I, I think I would love teaching. Yeah. I oh, just don't. I just don't want to do research. <laughs> that is fair. But you know what? We have enough autistics who do love to do research. So We do. We do. And autistics tend to be very good at research because 
we're very detail-oriented. Yes, we are. So it tends to be thorough. Those of you wondering about academia, when you do a PhD, you get to hyper-focus on your main interest for a really long time. It's well-suited to us. It's well-suited yeah. to us. Yeah. If, if your main interest is, is the thing you're studying. Yes, that's true. You have to find something you care enough about to do it for a couple of years. Yeah. Or many years. Or many years, and only that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. So, um, I have I have good news and bad news right now. Um, the good news is, I had so much fun recording this episode. Me too. Uh, the bad news is, I think we've gone like twenty five minutes over time. Okay, this will be one of our longer episodes. <laughs> so. Um, in the interest of not boring our listeners, <laughs> thank you so much for listening today. I'm Maya Todil. You can find me online uh, whenever I'm there, I guess. I'm very <laughs> bad at social media. <laughs> you can find me at Maya Todil um, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. And you can find Kara Diamond at... Dr. Kara Diamond. Uh, I also have a website, karadiamond.com. Um, but again, like Maya, I'm not, I'm a little bit more active than she is, but not much. Like I just responded to two lovely comments that were on my website for like four months and six months ago. Like I was like, felt terrible. We're terrible. We yeah. have, we have very busy lives outside of this podcast, but we're, we're trying. Yeah. yeah. We try to balance um, all the things. Meanwhile, we hope that you enjoy listening and we hope that you'll come back for the next episode. Please do subscribe, do the commenty things, share it, whatever you can do on the platform you're on. And um, thank you so much for listening. Bye. Solidarity. <laughs>